Welcome to the Kenmore Church Podcast. We are all about filling hearts and fueling mission. We hope this content builds your heart and mind and equips you to reveal Jesus in this season of your life. Well, good morning. Um, so good to be with you today as we are um, discussing just the need to consider uh, us going wider in our theological bandwidth to reach our communities, our city, and even the world uh, with the great news of the gospel. Last week, we had a chat about the Micah mandate, where Micah comes in uh, chapter 6, verse 8, and it sort of answers the question, what God requires of us. Now, this is so interesting because so often when we think about our Christianity, we, um, we tend to fall into the trap of thinking what we require from God. God, help me with this. Do this for me. Make sure that all these things work out. And, and subsequently, some of that could translate into a very me-centered gospel where, in my definition, we focus on the vertical relationship only, what God does for me. But the full story of the gospel is not just that God saved me, but that God sent me. And in Micah 6 verse 8, he speaks about the need to walk humbly, and we covered that last week. The second part is the fact that we need to love mercy. So God requires us to love mercy. Now there's a story in Jeremiah 29 where it sort of picks up one of the age-old great songs. I don't know if some of you remember the old Boney M song by the rivers of Babylon. Sort of tells a story that we find in the Psalms where uh, the Babylonians came to the Israelites on the um, bank of the river and said, sing us a song, um, sing us some of your songs that you sang in Israel. And, and they said to them, how can we sing a song of praise in a foreign country? And so often when I hear that, I hear the story of Christians just reminiscing the past, not being able to translate their faith into the present tense, where we sit on the rivers of Babylon, thinking about the age-old, good old days. And, and something in Jeremiah 29, we all know the, uh, the verse in, ver, uh, in, in, in um, verse 11, where it says, where God says, I know the plans that I have for you. Plans where you would have a great future, where you would have hope. But we miss the first part of that story, where God actually says to the Israelites in Babylon, and He says, pray for the peace of the city that I send you to. That there's something of the sentness that they've discovered in being in Babylon. That God um, was partly responsible of bringing them, bringing them there. God says to them, marry people, build houses, plant gardens. Make sure that you engage Babylon. Because in its prosperity, you will prosper. And, and there's something so beautiful in this where our ability to engage society, our ability to translate this incredible salvation that Christ achieved for us into the society that we're living in is critical for us to become a life-giving presence in our world. Now, the interesting thing when it comes to uh, the Micah mandate, loving mercy, um, we talk about the ability to engage the social pain of, of our city. That, that loving mercy has to do with a people-to-people -people connection. Where walking humbly has to do with the God-to-us and us-to-God connection. 
loving mercy has to do with the people-to-people connection and, and basically facilitates reconciliation, bringing people together. Reconciliation is loving, loving mercy. Now, now, we need to understand that mercy in the first century Roman Empire was not seen as a virtue, but it was actually seen as a sign of, of weakness. One Roman philosopher called mercy a disease of the soul. To them, mercy was um, a sign that you didn't have what it takes to be a real man and especially a real Roman. They glorified courage and justice and discipline and, and absolute power. And they looked down on mercy because they saw it as weakness. And weakness in the Roman Empire was despised above all human limitations. So it was very difficult to find mercy in that day and age. And that's where it becomes so interesting because Jesus showed mercy everywhere he went. The definition of mercy is a blessing that is an act. Now that's important. Mercy isn't just a thought. Mercy is an act of divine favor or compassion. Uh, when, When the Greek defines the word mercy in the ISB uh, dictionary, it uses it in relation to misery and the relief of misery. See, there's a big difference between grace and mercy. Grace is God's free gift displayed uh, through forgiveness. Grace is extended to humanity uh, as they are guilty, but mercy is extended to us because they are miserable. And there's a big part of um, the ability to bring relief to humanity's misery that is an act of mercy. So mercy for me is the ability to absorb the failings of others. It's driven by an irresistible love for the oppressed, the downtrodden, the sick, the outcast, the anxious, the tortured, those who are suffering injustice. See, merciful will seek those who are meshed up in brokenness, in their sin and guilt, and they will willingly sacrifice their own honor to bring relief. And that's what we saw in in the life of Christ. I love what William Barclay said. He said, uh, merciful has the idea or the ability to get right inside the other person's skin until we can see things with their eyes, think things with their mind, and feel things with their feelings. It's the ability to walk into someone else's world. So my definition when I sort of work through this is mercy is the ability to enter the tragedies, the failings, and the injustice of those with compassion. Compassion has this ability to, to, to share with empathy. The ability to enter, with, uh, to enter the misery of others and to feel what they feel and to experience the sorrow that they're experiencing, um, especially those who are stricken by misery. And I think a big part of mercy is driven by a strong desire to alleviate suffering. Warren Wiesber said, Mercy is a bridge that God built to humankind. Mercy is a bridge we, we build towards others. And, and for us to understand mercy, we need to understand that there's three parts to it. Firstly, our ability to see the need, that's recognition. We recognize that someone needs mercy. The second part is, I am moved by the need, that's motivation. But the third part is, I am moved to meet the need, that's action. 
and mercy in its fullness will always need action. Now, there's an interesting little concept when, um, when we think of mercy that needs to be understood. And, and we find that in Matthew 5, verse 7, where Jesus speaks about the fact that blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Scott McKnight, McKnight said, the fifth beatitude complements the fourth, uh, those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, and it even clarifies it. See, in the biblical times, they sort of wrote letters with a chiastic structure. The best way to understand that is when, uh, to think when you buy a hamburger, that we don't buy the hamburger for the bread. We actually buy the hamburger for the meat in the middle, and for me, the chilies that accompany the meat. So to think about a chiastic structure is to say that um, the outside is sort of uh, something that complements the main thing in the middle. And when we read the Beatitudes, the one thing that stands central is blessed are the merciful. And above, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. And below, blessed are the pure in heart. It's actually written in a way where the main Beatitude would be blessed are the merciful for God would show his mercy to them. See, in Jesus' time, um, there was a whole different understanding of righteousness, where every understanding of righteousness was built around people trying to be righteous. It actually um, had nothing to do with your status or your behavior as much as it had to do with your desire. Righteousness was all about desire. And if you think about righteousness and generosity, I think so often when we think of righteousness, we think of withdrawing from evil rather than giving ourselves to good. Just want to say that again. Righteousness, our thoughts could be so easily confined to just withdrawing from evil, saying I'm righteous because I don't do that. But in the biblical times, righteousness, especially in the life of Christ, when he spoke about righteousness, righteousness was all about giving yourself to good. And, and, and the connection between righteousness and generosity, it was actually the same word with just two extra letters added because it was impossible to be righteous without being generous. Throughout the Bible, righteousness and generosity are connected more than 2,000 times. That righteousness, what do you desire? Generosity, how do you use your means to address what you desire? And thinking about this, just in terms of how Jesus spoke about it. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they will be satisfied. And blessed are those who um, are merciful, for they will, be shown mercy. they will be shown mercy. It's actually so interesting to understand that the idea of your deepest desires is actually unlocked when we see the misery and the oppression and the needs of others. Where we look at the world that we're living in, and we ask the question, what do I desire for the world? Not just what do I desire for me? And that translates really quickly when your kids or someone you love is stuck in misery or failings. Where the first thing that you want to do is you want to bring relief to them. You'll do whatever you can to actually save them. But what if that wasn't just something driven for the people you know, but actually driven by the need to bring um, mercy to the world that we're living in. So righteousness is the desire. Generosity is the means. 
and mercy is the outcome. Now, righteousness is a doorway where I love the phrase in the New Testament and the Old Testament where it actually speaks to the fact that righteousness and mercy kiss. Where Jesus said, blessed are the merciful, blessed are those who enter into the tragedies, the miseries, the failings and the oppression of of others. For they will experience how God will enter their tragedies, their miseries, their failings, their oppression and their anxiety. Isn't it beautiful to think that as we give ourselves to the social pain in our community, in our workplace, in our social structures, if we give ourselves to the social pain of um, the world that we're living in, that God commits in saying that He will enter into our social pain, that He will address our misery, our failings, our shortcomings, and He will bring mercy to that. You see, one of the things that strikes me is how often we, um, we want to walk into a, a social pain challenge with a faith response where someone is going through a real tough time in their people-to-people relationship. And the only advice that we can offer is, you just need to believe in Jesus. Now, I think it's imperative that we state that people need to believe in Christ. But someone, sometimes that's not the primary answer or the initial answer to the pain, the social pain that they're in. We need to start developing the capacity to bring social pain answers to social pain challenges. And I believe that's exactly what Jesus did when he left heaven and came to earth. Just look at what Hebrews 2 verse 17 says. He says, um, the author of the book of Hebrews says, For this reason he, referring to Christ, had to be be made human like them fully human in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. That Jesus actually became a merciful high priest, meaning that he entered our world. He entered our miseries, our failings, our anxieties, our oppression to bring uh, mercy to them. See, even in the life of Christ, he didn't bring a spiritual answer to a social challenge. He actually became one of us. Paul speaks of the same thing in Romans 12, verse 1 and 2, probably one of the most well-quoted scriptures in the Bible, where he speaks about the fact um, in verse 1 that he urges us, speaks about brothers and sisters in view of God's mercy. Now, just think about that. Now, often do we quote this not even thinking about the mercy side of God. He says, I urge you in view of God's mercy, in view of what God did when he sent his son to become one of us, to enter our world, to absorb our failings, our miseries, our oppression, our anxiety, in view of what God did for us. Look at what Paul says. He says, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. So in view of what God did in Christ, Paul urges us to become uh, living sacrifices, to sacrifice ourselves by entering into the tragedies, the failings, the miseries, the brokenness, the, the, the anxieties of other people. 
And then he makes this comment. He says, this is your true and proper worship. Now that's interesting. Because so often we define worship as a vertical response. Where Paul is saying that worship, true and proper worship, actually happens on a horizontal level. Where we embrace what Christ did for us. And we enact the exact same thing that he did for us. Where we sacrifice ourselves to absorb the failings, the miseries, the oppression of, of others. It says, don't conform to the pattern of this world. Don't see mercy as, uh, as something woeful. He says, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's good and pleasing and perfect will is. Now, two things. This is the way that you experience true worship and the way that you prove the will of God is by doing the same thing Christ did. By incarnating, by embodying the fullness of the cross in your life and trusting that what God did for you is sufficient so that you can enter the pain and the brokenness in our world. Now, it's important for us to just to distinguish between grace and mercy. Grace is God's solution to man's sin. Mercy is God's solution to man's misery. Grace covers sin. Mercy removes the pain. Grace, grace gives us what we don't deserve. Mercy uh, does not give us what we deserve. Grace is unearned favor where mercy is undeserved favor that forgives. Grace saves. Grace deals with the cause of sin. Mercy deals with the symptoms of sin. And there's so much more that I can say. But one of the mo most beautiful thing is grace says there's heaven. Mercy says no more hell. I think um, if we lead into society with the message of hell, we've missed the understanding of grace and mercy in our lives. So I want to challenge you with this. What does it look like for you to embrace, to love mercy, to love the ability that God has given you to enter into the brokenness, the failings, the miseries of others. Realizing that that is the most uh, worshipful act. That is something that proves the will of God in your life. Your ability to enter into the failings and the injustices of others with a sense of compassion and empathy. With a strong desire to bring um, relief to that. And I think when we think about the cross, that's exactly what Jesus did. That was an act of mercy. The cross was Jesus' loving mercy. It was a love response driven by the deepest desire uh, birthed out of the heart of the Father. Jesus entered our world. He humbled himself by incarnating himself in our world. In his generosity, he made all of his resources available to us to release us from our misery, our tragedies, our failings, and our sufferings. Hebrews 4 verse 15 to 16, uh, the author comes and he says, This high priest of ours understands our weakness. That's beautiful. Jesus understands our weakness. For he faced all of the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God, so we come boldly and guess what we receive? There, we'll, there we will receive His mercy and find grace to help us in the time we need it most. Um, 
I can say with full confidence that the best thing you can do whilst, while you're stuck in miseries, in failings, in your anxiety, is to turn to God. There you will find grace and mercy to help you in your time of need. I want to close with this verse. This was actually one of the key verses that God spoke to me on the first day that I heard about uh, COVID-19. And I just felt how God said, Clinton, this will be a time where the church needs to act out um, their love towards their community. It's found in 2 Corinthians 1 verse 3 to 11. And it says, God offers comfort to all. It starts in verse 3 saying, All praise to God, the Father of of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is our most is our merciful Father and the source of all comfort. He comforts us in all our trouble, troubles so that we can comfort others. There's that principle that God brings mercy to you so that you could bring comfort and mercy to others. When they are troubled, we will be able to give them the same comfort God has given us. For the more we suffer for Christ, the more we absorb the failings, the miseries, the oppression of others, the more God will shower us with His comfort through Christ. Even when we are weighed down with troubles, it is for your comfort and salvation. For when we ourselves are comforted, we will certainly comfort you. Then you can patiently endure the same things we suffer. We are confident that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in the comfort God gives us. We think you ought to know, dear brothers and sisters, about the trouble we went through in the province of Asia. We were crushed and overwhelmed beyond our ability to endure, and we thought we would never live through it. In fact, we expected to die. But as a result, we stopped relying on ourselves and learn to rely on God who raises the dead. Now that's the clincher. In the moment where you are confronted with your misery, your failings, your tragedies, your oppression, the one thing we want to rely on is the God who has the ability to raise the dead back to life. See, God isn't um, at all um, uh, reduced in His capacity to think about tragedies. That's actually where God shines through the best. Verse 10 said, And He did rescue, rescue us from mortal danger, and He will rescue us again. We have placed our confidence in Him, and He will continue to rescue us. And you are helping us by praying for us. Then many people will give thanks to God because He has graciously answered so many prayers for your safety. Imagine that's the story of our communities. That because we are willing to enter into the tragedies and the failings and the miseries of others, that so many people will experience God's comfort coming to their lives. Where we say no to our own comfort, but we actually work for the benefit to bring comfort to others by walking into some, some of the most severe challenges that our society presents. Imagine that becomes part of them turning to God and bringing thanks to Him. May you be blessed.